This podcast is part of the OIW Podcasting Network. Good morning, good evening, good night. How is everybody doing out there? This is Gilmy again, and I just want to say thank you for for tuning in to Gilmy Talks. I really, really appreciate it. And due to the uh, popularity of my previous Bigfoot podcast, I'm doing another one on the Patterson-Gimlin film, or PGF, or the Patterson film. But before that, I just want want to say if this is your first time tuning in, welcome. My name is Justin Gilmet, also known as Gilmy. I am the podfather of the OIW Podcast Network. I am part of the Johnners Network, based out of the UK. And you know what? I do a bunch of this stuff. I do merchandise. I do a whole little spiel here. Um, I work with Clay Studio Productions, and, and we make merch. Stickers, buttons, t-shirts there. Um, I am a... I am sponsored by GhostJewels.com. You can check them out on Instagram or GhostJewels.com. Um, and use the promo code GILMI for 30% off if you want some amazing jewelry. I think it's fantastic. I love the, love the rings. I am a ring guy. I am a watch guy. And I just love their stuff. Even their... Uh, I got their Thor bracelet, which is very, very cool. That I, I do really like. And if you want a present for that special someone, go check out BatsInTheBelfryArt.com individually made portraits and amazing artwork and and amazing style and if you are ever in london ontario go check out doing fine kitten uh, (laughs) not kittens go check out doing fine kitchens in dundas and sons brewing amazing food amazing beer by amazing people i one of my my favorite stops and now that i'm done all that let's get into the patterson gimlin film The Patterson-Gimlin film, also known as The Patterson Film, or PGF, is an American short motion picture of an unidentified subject that the the filmmakers have said was Bigfoot. The footage was shot in 1967 in Northern California and has since been subjugated to many attempts to authenticate or debunk it. The footage was filmed alongside Bluff Creek, tributary of the Claymath River, about 25 logging road road miles, 40 kilometers for the Canadian listeners, northwest of Orleans, California, in Del Norte County on the Six Rivers National, National Forest. The film site is roughly 38 miles south of Oregon and 18 miles east of the Pacific Ocean. For decades, the exact location of the site was lost, primarily because of regrowth of fol- foliage in the stream bed after the flood of 1964. It was rediscovered in 2011. Oh my goodness, that was a long time. It's just south of a north-running segment of creek, informally known as the Bowling Alley. The filmmakers were Roger Patterson, 1933 to 1972, and Robert Bob Gimlin, born 1931. Patterson died of cancer in 1972 and maintained right to the end that the creature on the film was real. Patterson friend 
Gimlin has always denied being involved in any part of a hoax with Patterson. Gimlin mostly avoided pub- publicity discussing the subject from at least the early 70s until about 2005, except for three appearances, when he began giving interviews and appearing at Bigfoot conferences. The film is 23.85 feet, 7.2 meters long, preceded by 76.5 feet or 23.21 meters of horseback footage, has 954 frames and runs for 59.5 seconds and at 16 frames per second if the film was shot at 18 frames per second. The event lasted 53 seconds. The date was October 20th, 1967, according to filmmakers, although some critics believe it was shot earlier. Hmm. I don't know about that. Background. Patterson said he became interested in Bigfoot after reading an article about the creature in by Ivan T. Sanderson in True Magazine in December 1959. In 1961, Sanderson published his encyclopedia, Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life, a worldwide survey of accounts of Bigfoot-type creatures, including recent track finds, etc., in the Bluff Creek area, which heightened his interest. In 1962, he visited Bluff Creek and talked a whole host of to a whole host of Bigfoot believers. In 1964, he returned and met a timber-cruising Pat Graves, who drove him to Lard Meadows. There, Patterson saw fresh tracks for him, an an almost unbearably exciting, spine-chilling experience. What a tremendous feat it would be. What a scientific breakthrough if he could obtain unshakable evidence that these tracks were not the work of a prankster, but the actual mark of a hitherto unknown creature. If he succeeded... He would be famous and rich. Alas, fame and fortune were not gained that year, nor the next, nor the next. Patterson invested thousands of hours and dollars combing Bigfoot and Sasquatch territory. He fought constant ridicule and a shortage of funds. He founded the Northwest Research Foundation. Through it, he solicited funds. The response was encouraging and enabled him to lead several expeditions. In 1966, he published a paperback book, at his own expense. He added the income from its sales and lectures to the search fund. As East Wilderness Jaunt failed to see or capture the monster, one by one, the thrill-seekers dropped off, but Patterson never gave up. Patterson's book, Do Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist, was self-published in 1966. The book has been characterized a little more than a collection of newspaper clippings laced together with Patterson's circus poster-style prose. The book, however, contains 20 pages of previously unpublished interviews and letters, 17 drawings by Patterson of the encounters described in the text, five hand-drawn maps rare in subsequent Bigfoot books, and almost 20 photos and illustrations from others. It was first reprinted in 1996 by Chris Murphy, then again reissued by Murphy in 2005 under the title The Bigfoot Film Controversy with 81 pages of additional material by Murphy. In May, June 1967, Patterson began filming a docudrama, a pseudo-documentary about cowboys being led by an old miner and a wise Indian or indigenous tracker 
I almost said it, guys, on a hunt for Bigfoot. The storyline called for Patterson, his indigenous guide, Gimlin in a wig. Oh, boy. That's no good. And the Cowboys to call in flashbacks the stories of Fred Beck of the 1924 Ape Canyon incident and others as they tracked the beast on horseback. For actors and cameramen, Patterson used at least nine volunteer acquaintances, including Gimlin and Bob Heronius, for three days of shooting. Perhaps over the Memorial Day weekend, Patterson would have needed a costume to represent Bigfoot if the time came to shoot such climactic scenes. Prior to October 1967, Patterson apparently visited Los Angeles on these occasions. Patterson drove to Hollywood in 1964 and visited rockabilly songwriter and guitarist Jerry Lee Merritt, a Yakima native who was living in Hollywood then. He was trying to sell his hoop toy in their invention. In 1966, he visited Merritt again while he was still trying to sell his hoop toy invention. Merritt soon moved back to, to Yakima and became Patterson's neighbor and later his collaborator on the Bigfoot documentary. Later, in 1966, he and Merritt drove down for several purposes. Patterson visited cowboy film star Roy Rogers for help. He tried to sell his ponies and wagon to Disneyland or Knotberry Farms. In 1967, apparently, after getting $700 for Radford's from the Radfords and shooting some of his documentary, they tried unsuccessfully to attract investors to help further fund his Bigfoot movie. They copyrighted the, and tra- or trademarked the term Bigfoot. Both Patterson and Gimlin have, had been rodeo riders and amateur boxers and local champions in their weight classes. Patterson had played high school football in 19, October 1967. Patterson and his friend Gimlin set out for the Six Rivers National forest in far northern California. They drove in Grim- Gimlin's truck carrying his provisions and three horses positioned sideways. Patterson chose the area because of the inter- intermittent reports of the creature in the past and the enormous footprints in s- since 1958. His familiar <laughs> being familiar with the area and its residents from prior visits, he also may have also been a factor. The most recent these reports were nearby Blue Creek Mountain Track find, which was investigated by journalist John Greed, Bigfoot hunter Rene Dahinta, and archaeologist Don Abbott on August 28, 1967. The find was reported to Patterson via, via his wife soon thereafter by Al Hogston, owner of Willow Creek Variety Store. Though Gimlin said he doubted the existence of a, of a satellite quatch like creatures, he agreed to Patterson's insistence that they should not attempt to shoot one. The encounter. There we go. When they actually meet Bigfoot. At, as their stories went, in the early afternoon of Friday, October 20th, 1967, Patterson and Gimlin were riding generally northeast upstream on horseback along the east bank of Bluff, Bluff Creek at sometime between 1.15 and 1.40 p.m. They came to an overturned tree with a large root system at a turn in the creek, almost as high as a room. When they rounded it, there was a log jam, a crow's nest, left over from the flood of 64. 
and then they spotted the figure behind it nearly simultaneously. It was either crouching beside the creek to the left or standing there on the opposite bank. Gimlin later described himself in a mid-state of shock after seeing the figure. Patterson initially estimated its height at six foot six foot six to seven feet tall and later raised the es estimate to about seven feet six inches. Some later analysts, anthropologists, Grover Kratz among them have suggested Patterson's later estimate was about a foot too tall. Gimlin's estimate was about six feet. The film shows what Patterson and Gimlin claimed was a large bipedal ape-like figure with short silvery brown or dark reddish hair or black hair covering most of his body including its prominent breasts. The figure in the film generally matches the des description offered by others who claim to have seen Big Bigfoot as a well. Patterson estimated he was about 20 feet uh, 25 feet away from the creature at his closest. Patterson said that his horse reared up sensing the creature and he spent about 20 seconds getting himself off the saddle, controlling his horse, getting away around to its other side, and getting the camera from a saddlebag before he could run towards the figure while operating his camera. He yelled, cover me, to Gimlin, meaning to get the gun out. Gimlin crossed the creek on horseback, and Patterson had run well behind it, riding on a path somewhat to the left of Patterson, somewhat beyond his position. Prez estimates he came within 60 to 90 feet of Paddy, then rifle in hand, he dismounted, but did not point the rifle at the creature. The figure had walked away f from them to a distance of about 120 feet, 37 meters, before Patterson began to run after it. The resulting film, about 59.5 seconds, long at 16 frames per second, is initially quite shaky until Patterson got to about 80 feet from the figure. At that point, the figure glanced over its right shoulder at the men, and Patterson fell to his knees. On Kratz's map, this responds to frame 264. To researcher John Green, Patterson would later characterize the creature's expression as one of contempt and disgust. You know how when the umpire tells you one more word and you're out of here, that's the way it felt. Shortly after, after the point, Shortly after this point, he, the steady middle portion of the film begins, containing the famous look back at frame 352. Patterson said it turned, I think, a total of three times. The other times, therefore, being before the filming began or while he was running with his finger off the trigger, shortly after glancing over its shoulder, the creature disappeared behind a grove of trees for 14 seconds, then reappeared in the film's final 15 seconds after Patterson moved 10 feet to a better vantage point, fading into the trees again and being lost to view at a distance of 265 feet, 81 meters, as the film reel ran out. Gimlin remounted and followed it on horseback, keeping a distance, but it disappeared around a bend in the road 300 yards away. Patterson called, called him back at that point, feeling vulnerable on foot without a rifle because he feared the creature's mate might approach. The entire encounter lasted less than two minutes. Next, Gimlin and Patterson rounded up Patterson's horses, who had run off in the complete opposite direction downstream before the filming began. Patterson got his second roll of film from his saddlebag and filmed the tracks. Then the men tracked Patty for either one mile or three miles, 
but lost it to the heavy undergrowth. They were chasing a wild animal in the woods, and if you, you lose sight of it, you lose it. They went to their campsite three miles south, picked up plaster, returned to the initial site, measured the creature's step length, and made two plaster casts, one of each of the best quality right and left prints. According to Patterson and Gimlin, they were the only witnesses to the brief encounter with what they claimed was a Sasquatch. The statements agree in general. Their statements agree in general, but author Greg Long notes a number of inconsistencies. They offer somewhat different sequences in describing how the horses, how they and the horses reacted upon seeing the creature. Patterson, in particular, increased his estimates of the creature's size in subsequent retellings of the encounter. Well, as you get older, your memory does does get a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, how should I put this? Interesting. <laughs> but Patterson, in particular, increased the size. Uh, Long argues these discrepancies would probably be considered minor, but given the extraordinary claims made by Patterson and Gim Gimlin, any apparent disagreements in perception of memory are worth noting. The film's defenders have responded by saying that commercially motivated hoax hoaxers would have got their story straight beforehand, so they wouldn't have disagreed immediately upon being interviewed and on so many points. And so they wouldn't have created a suit and a creature with foreseeable, objectionable features and behaviors. The more serious objection concerns the film timeline. This is important because Kodachrome movie film, as far as known, could only be developed in a lab containing a $60,000 plus machine, and the few West Coast labs known to possess one did not develop, did not do developing over weekends. Patterson's brother-in-law, Al Diletti, claims not to remember where he took the film for development or where he picked it up. Critics claim that too much happened between the filming at 1.15 at the earliest and the filmmaker's arrival in Willow Creek at 6.30 at the latest. Delaying wrote, all of the problems with the timeline disappear if the film is shot in a few days or hours beforehand. If that is the case, one has to wonder what other details of the story are wrong. The film's defenders retort that although the time window was tight, it was doable. Chris Murphy wrote, I have confirmed with Bob Gimlin that Patterson definitely rode a small quarter horse, which he owned, not his Welsh pony Peanuts, along that also that Patterson had arranged to borrow a horse by the name of Chico from Bob I don't know that last name, for Gimlin to use. Gimlin did not have a horse that was suitable old enough for the expedition and stated that Chico, a middle-aged gelding, wouldn't jump or buck. Now on to the immediate af aftermath. At approximately 6.30 p.m., Patterson and Gimlin met up with Al Hogston at his variety store in Willow Creek, approximately 54.3 miles south by road and about 28.8 miles by Bluff Creek Road from their camp to the 1967 roadhead with Bluff Creek. And do 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 camp. Yeah, it's just a bunch of miles here. And 
Oh, and he told his brother-in-law, Al Diatli, his brother-in-law in Yakima, he told him to expect the film he was shipping. He requested Hodgson to call Donald Abbott, whom Grover Kratz described as the only scientist of any stature to have demonstrated any serious interest in the Bigfoot subject, hoping he would help them search for the creature by bringing a tracking dog. Hodgson called, but Abbott declined. Kratz argued that this call the same day of the encounter is evidence against a hoax, at least on Patterson's part. After shipping the film, they headed back towards the camp where they had left their, their, their horses. On the way, they stopped by the Lower Trino- Trinity Ranger Station, as planned, arriving about 9 p.m. Here they met Sly Sil McCoy, another friend, and Al Hogson. At this point, Patterson called the Daily Time Standard newspaper in Eureka and related his story. They arrived back at the campsite at around midnight at either 5 or 5.30 the next morning after it started to rain heavily. Gimlin returned to the film site from the camp and covered the other prints with bark to protect them. The cardboard boxes had been given by Al Hogston for this purchase and the left outside were so soggy they were useless so they they left them. When he returned to the camp he and Patterson aborted their plans to remain looking for more evidence and departed for home fearing the rain would wash out their, their exit. After attempting to go along the low road, Bluff Creek Road, and finding it blocked by a mudslide, they went instead up the steep Onion Mountain Road, of whose shoulder their truck slipped. Extract, extracting it required unauthorized boring of a nearby front-end loader. The drive home from their campsite covered about 580 miles, 930 kilometers, the initial 2.8 miles on a low-speed logging road, and then about 110 miles on a twisty Route 96. Driving a truck with three horses and allowing for occasional stops, it would have taken 13 hours to get home Saturday evening, at an average speed of 45 kilometers. Seven, uh, sorry, 45 miles per hour, 72 kilometers. It would have taken 14.5 hours at 40 kilometers. 40 miles per hour, 64 kilometers average speed. U.S. Forest Service's timber management assistant, Lyle Lavity, said, I and his team of three in a jeep passed the site on on either Thursday the 19th or Friday the 20th and noticed no tracks. After reading the news of Patterson's encounter on the weekend break, Laverty and his team returned to the site on Monday the 23rd and made six photos of tracks. Laverty later served as an assistant secretary of the interior under George, George Bush. Taxidermist and outdoorman Robert Titmus went to the site with his sister and brother-in-law. Nine days later, they made plaster casks of ten successive prints of the creature, and as best as he could, plotted Patterson and the creature's movements on a map. Long-term aftermath. Grover Kratz writes that Patterson had the film developed as soon as possible. And first, at first he thought he had brought in proof of Bigfoot's existence and really expected the scientists to accept it. But only a few scientists were even willing to look at it. Usually at showings at scientific organizations, there were usually arranged at the behest of zoologists 
uh, zoologist, author, and meteor figure Ivan Sanderson, a supporter of Patterson Film. Seven showings occurred in Vancouver, Manhattan, the Bronx, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and Wash and D.C. again, all by the, t- by the end of 1968. Then later, in Beaverton, Oregon, of those who were quoted most expressed various reservations, although some were willing to say that they were in- definitely intrigued by it. Christopher Merson wrote, uh, Dan Hidden traveled to Europe with the film in 1971. He visited England, Finland, Swindland, Sweden, <laughs> Swindland, uh, Switzerland, and Russia. Although scientists in these countries were somewhat more open-minded than those in North America, their findings were basically the same. A real glimmer of hope, how, however, emerged in Russia when they met Bayanov, Bortsev, and their associates. Though there was little scientific interest in the film, Patterson was still able to capitalize on it. He made a deal with the BBC allowing the use of his footage in a docudrama made in return for letting him tour with their docudrama instead, which he melded material from his own documentary and additional material he and Al Atley filmed. The film was shown in local movie houses around the Pacific Northwest and Midwest. A technique commonly used for nature films called four-walling was employed, involving heavy local advertising, mostly on TV, of a few days of showing. It was a modest, modest financial success. Al Diatli estimated that his 50% of the film profits amounted to $75,000. The film generated a fair amount of national publicity. Patterson appeared on a few popular TV shows, the film Bel- and Belief in Bigfoot by showing experts from it. For instance, on, on the Joe Pine show, in uh, uh, the film generated a fair amount of national publicity. Patterson appeared on a few popular TV shows to promote the film and belief in Bigfoot by showing experts from it. For instance, on the Joe Pine Show in Los Angeles, 1967, which covered most of the Western U.S., on Merv Griffith's program with Kratz offering his analysis of the film, and on Joey Bishop's talk show, and also on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Articles of the film appeared in Argosy, National Wildlife, and Reader's Digest. One radio interview with Gimlin by Vancouver-based Jack Webster in November 1967 was partially recorded by John Green and reprinted in Lauren Coleman's Bigfoot. Patterson also appeared on broadcast interviews on local stations near where the film would be shown during his four-walling tour in 1968. Patterson subsequently sold overlapping distribution rights for the films to several party parties, which resulted in costly legal entanglements. Yeah, he got a little, little, little excited. After Patterson's death, Michael McLeod wrote, "With the consent of Al Diatli and Patricia Patterson, the film's distributor Ron Olson took over the operation of the Northwest Research." and changed its name to North American Wildlife Research Association. He worked full-time compiling reports, soliciting volunteers to join the hunt, and organizing several small exhibitions of a Bigfoot trap. Ocean and his crew built, built still survives. Ocean continued to lobby the company to produce a Bigfoot film. In 1974, A&E finally agreed it was released in 1975 called, titled Bigfoot, Man or Beast, 
He devised having a storyline involving members of the Bigfoot Research Party. Olsen spent several years exhibiting the film around the country. He planned to make millions with the film, but says it lost money. Olsen is profiled in Barbara Watson's Sasquatch Apparitions. In November 1974, broadcast Monsters, Mystery or Myth, a documentary about the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. It was co-produced by the Smithsonian Institution, which canceled their contract with the producer the next year. The show attracted 50 million viewers. In 1975, Sun Classic Pictures released Bigfoot, the Mysterious Monster, a.k.a. the Mysterious Monsters, which remixed part of the Monsters, Mystery or Myth. Another documentary called Land of the Yeti, which also included footage footage from from the film. And... Patterson's expensive. This is this filmmaker-related stuff, guys. The he got in legal trouble because he the camera he rented he did not return on time, and he was actually arrested within the weeks of his return from Bluff Creek. But while and while Patterson sought publicity, Gimlin was not very. He's not the outgoing, out, outgoing one, 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 one of the uh, two. And apparently, Al Diatli had broken their agreement to pay him one third of the share of profits generated by the film. Another factor that was that his wife objected to publicly. And basically, they fight over the money. Legal status: Greg Long reports that a 1978 settlement, legal settlement, gave. Dahindin controlling rights, 51% of the film footage, 51% of video cassette rights, and 100% of all 952 frames of the footage. Patty Patterson had 100% of all TV rights, 49% of the film footage. Uh, Dahindin had bought out Gimlin, who himself received nothing from Patterson, and Mason and Redford promised part of the profits by Patterson had nothing to show for their investment or efforts. The film will enter the public domain on January 1st, 2063, when all works published in 1967 enter the public domain. Now, there was two reels of the film. Two reels. Um, the first and, and second one, I guess. The whereabouts of the original is unknown, although there are several speculations as to what happened to it. Um, yeah. Patterson succeeded ownership to the American National Enterprises, which went bankrupt a few years af- after his death in 1972. Thereafter, Greg Long writes, uh, Peregrine Entertainment bought the company and was brought by Century... Then they were bought by Century Group of Los Angeles when Century Group went bankrupt in 1996. Brin rushes to Deerfield Beach, Florida with an account of auctioning the company's assets to pay creditors. The company's film were in storage in Los Angeles, but a search failed to turn up the Patterson footage. In t- 2008, Chris Murray Murphy thought a Florida law- lawyer might have the film, not realizing until later that the lawyer had contacted the Los Angeles storage company that held it and that it had responded that the film was not in the location that the lawyer's records indicated. Bill Munns writes that he had last seen researchers Rene Dahinden and Bruce Bonney in 1980 when Rene convinced the film Vault in Southern California holding it in release to him 
It made images from it sometime between then and 1996. The film went missing from its numbered location in the vault. At least seven copies were made of the original film. Bill Munns listed four other missing reels of derivative works that would be helpful to, fi for, to film analysis. The second reel showing Patterson and Gimlin making and displaying pla plaster casts of some footprints were not shown in conjunction with the first reel at the Atlee's house. According to those who were there, Chris Murphy wrote, I believe the screening of this reel at the University of British Columbia back on October 26, 1967 was the first and last major screening. It has subsequently been lost. John Green suspects that Al de Atlee has it. A 10-foot strip from that reel, or from a copy of the reel, which still images were taken by Chris Murphy, still exists, but it too has gone missing. So, and there's been analysis, there's been all sorts of stuff on this film, guys. It's been looked at n by numerous researchers, by numerous people, everybody who, ha who has interest in Bigfoot has seen this thing. Uh, there is major hoax, hoax allegations, but to be honest, I believe this film is true. And you can go on online and follow up on all the information about all the key players in this. But that's the Bigfoot Patterson Gimlin info, guys. Because I think that this film is unfakeable at that time. I think it is absolutely amazing that they caught this. And I like to believe that it is real because I like to believe Big Bigfoot's real. So, thanks for tuning in, guys. Remember, go check out the OIWpodcastnetwork.com. We have a writer, writer on there putting up articles. We have a lot of things going on with the website and all, all of our shows. I just want to say thank you for tuning in. For listening, go check out Ghost Jewels, BatsInTheBelfryArt.com, Doing fine, fine, fine Kitchens, and you know what? Go check out the Gilmy Talk socials because I get so... I don't understand how my socials are not bigger than what they were. Are I put up uh, Today's Funny, I put Cryptozoology things, things I find in interesting. You never know what I'm, I'm, I'm going to post there. So check out the socials, go follow them. Go check out my network. You need merch done? Go check out Clay Studios Productions. They do great stuff. And I hope you guys have a fantastic day. And hopefully this put a little bit of, of a smile on your face. Talk to you late, later, guys.